I invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus 24. As I mentioned, we're going to look at just one verse of Scripture this morning that's going to become the window through which we're going to look at the second half of the book of Exodus. As many of you know, the vast majority of you know, we've been working through the Bible this whole year. We started in January 1st with a look at perhaps the most foundational truth in all of the Bible that God is Creator and that we are accountable to Him. The next week, we focused our attention upon Abraham, focusing upon the, the Abrahamic covenant. The blessings that God promised to Abraham were threefold. God promised to make of Abraham a great nation. He promised to give him a land and He promised to bless him greatly. And so central and so crucial is that promise to the rest of the Scripture is that the whole rest of the Bible really is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. God merely chose Abraham out of anybody upon the earth and said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your descendants and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And in fact, we saw that then these past two weeks. So we looked two weeks ago at the story of Joseph. When God caused Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery, it was a terrible thing. It was a sinful thing. It was an evil thing. But ultimately, it delivered God's people and rescued them from the famine that was over the entire world. And last week, through the plagues, we saw how God kept His amazing and boundless promises to Abraham, renewed them to Moses, and then demonstrated His power in such a great way that the Jews are still talking today about the wonderful power of God And the reason why he displayed that was because he's faithful to his promises to Abraham. Well, this morning we arrive at the last half of the book of Exodus. I've designated my text from Exodus 19 through chapter 40. And of course, we can't get to all of that. But we'll get to enough of it. We'll get to the crucial aspects of it. But when we come here, we find that our narrative slows way down. There isn't nearly as much interaction or action as there has been. I mean, people aren't moving from place to place. There are not conflicts between people that need to be resolved. Dialogue has been greatly reduced. Instead, God brings the law. My message this morning is entitled, The Coming of the Law. And as the law came, it accomplished several purposes. One is that it told Israel of how to live. I mean, you think about in the History of Israel at this time, you've got well over a million people, perhaps even up to two million people that were in slavery under the, the governmental authorities of Egypt. And all of a sudden, they're off on their own in the wilderness. They need some kind of guidance and help in terms of a nation, how they're going to be governed and how they're going to be guided. Otherwise, there would be anarchy. And that's why God gave Israel the law. And to open up the law for you, I want to look here at this one verse, Exodus 24, verse 3. It says this, Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. It's so short, I want to read it again for you. Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. 
And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. My message has two simple points this morning. Hearing the law and obeying the law. That's how this verse breaks down. The first half of the verse, we read Moses recounting the law before all the people who had opportunity to hear it for the first time. They heard the law. In the second half of the verse, we read of the people embracing the law and pledging their obedience to the law. Hearing the law and obeying the law. I feel like that's a good way to open up the law for you. Let's look at our first point. Hearing the law. Verse 3a. If you put yourself in the situation of these Israelites, you've got to come to the conclusion that they were thrilled to hear this law. Here was God giving them help and advice and counsel as how to live in this great nation of theirs. Right? As I said before, they left Egypt. They're off on their own, but God tells them how it is that they ought to live, how it is the nation ought to work. <coughs> Excuse me. And you need really to understand what a great blessing the law was to the people of Israel. Moses will look back upon this event upon giving the law to the nation. And he'll say in Deuteronomy chapter 4, See, I've taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you're entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, this is the testimony of the nations, when they see Israel, With all these statutes and laws, they will say this, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law that I am setting before you today? In other words, when they would go into the land and the people would see Israel and would see the law, the the other nations would be amazed and would marvel at the God of the Israelites because they're such a wise people, because they have a God who's given them a law, and because they have a God who's given them righteous standards and righteous statutes. And the whole reason for this is because the other surrounding nations would all be idolatrous. If you think about an idol... An idol can't speak or do or say anything. And so as a nation is full of idol worshippers worshipping these idols, they worship in ignorance. They don't know what the idol expects of them. They don't know how it is they ought to obey the idol. They don't know what sorts of things they ought to do for the idol because the idol has never told them. In fact, this is very true in many idolatrous nations today. People in these nations are religious, all right, but they're clueless. Wandering in the night. No substance to their religion. No guidance. In fact, should you ask five different Hindus what the most important thing is in their religion, they'll give you five different answers. Because there is no answer. There is no guidance. They're kind of left to themselves. But see, our God is different. He's given us a law and He's instructed us of His ways that we might get to know how to live and please Him. In fact, that was the point of Moses at the end of his life, right? People would look upon God's statutes and say, you have a wise God and you are a wise people. And when Moses recounted this law, he would have begun 
with the Ten Commandments. For he went up to the mountain, God came down to meet him, and gave him Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. In fact, I want to read them for you right now. Many people have called this the moral law of God. Begins Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Even before you get to the commandments, you need to realize how the Ten Commandments begin. Verse 2 really sets the tone for the whole Ten Commandments. It, It says, listen, Israel, I'm a God who helped you and delivered you and rescued you. Right? I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I care for you. These laws aren't necessarily going to come and smash you, though there is some sense they do, but they help you. They discipline you. They train you, even as a parent might come to a child and say, listen, I have loved you and I have served you and for your goodness, I'm going to lay these rules and these regulations upon our home. That's the tenor and the context of the Ten Commandments. And then they come. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And even you can see there, honoring your father and mother is a blessing, will allow your days to be long. It puts you in the spirit of blessing. It's what all of these do. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These words directed Israel and how it is that they were to live before God and how it is that they were to live before others. God was to be their supreme object of worship. No other God was to have any place in their allegiance. And when dealing with others, these commands instructed a kindness and a care, right? Honoring parents with their lips and respecting the rights and property of others. Right? They're very reasonable, very helpful commands, and I would say very worthy of being followed today. They are worthy of being placed in our courtrooms, they are worthy of being memorized. They're worthy of being used as a code of conduct in every way in which we live. Well, people have often called that the moral law. I think it's a good designation. In chapters 21 through 23, then, as Moses would have continued to tell him the law, would have come to what is often called the civil law. That is, right, the governmental law. How do you deal with people and conflicts? How do you conduct the civil affairs? How do you deal with slaves and injuries and property rights? Let me just pick out a few for you to get a flavor of what 
these laws were like. Like in verse 2, read, If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. In other words, you could have slaves in Egypt, you could have a Hebrew slave, but you could only enslave somebody for six years. And after that time, they must go free, right? It's not long-term, life-term slavery is what God said here. But if the situation is nice and the slave likes his master and likes how his master is providing for him and his family and for his children in every way in exchange for his labor, he might choose to become a lifelong slave. And that's fine. It's kind of like a lifelong employer-employee relationship. Verses 5 and 6 explain how that happens, right? It's really so it's not to exploit a slave. Is the purpose here? Or or take another. Look over at verse 33 and 34. If a man opens a pit or digs a pit, does not cover it over, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead animal shall become his. Right? Here's a case of criminal neglect. Leaving a pit uncovered, an animal comes along, falls into the pit, dies. And God says, make financial retribution and make it right. Real reasonable, real helpful. Over in chapter 22, verse 6, a similar law comes about, right? If a, if a fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes so that stacked grain or the standing grain or the field itself is consumed, he who started the fire shall surely make restitution, right? In other words, the man who is responsible for the damage is responsible to make it up, right? This, these laws here are called case law. They're regulations by example, right? If this happens, this is what you should do. If this happens, this is what you do. And you can take all these examples and try to extrapolate them and figure out new situations and environments. That's how our law is established in our land as well. Case law. You know, laws are established in the judicial cases. Right? They come examples and they'll kind of build upon one another to know what's right. As you look at the flavor of these laws, always God didn't want people to be exploited through the power of others. He wanted the government to look after the victims. It's not so unlike our judicial system, right? It's the importance then of being righteous and being just, right? Chapter 23, verse 8 talks about how you shouldn't take a bribe. For the bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. And I really believe as Israel would have heard these laws and and listened to them and thought about them, they would have been thrilled and said, yes, this is a good law. And that's why they responded as they did in verse 3 of chapter 24. All the words the Lord has spoken will do because they're good. And then as they would have heard from chapters 25 through 30, these are what are often called the ceremonial laws. Giving them instructions about the Ark of the Covenant and the showbread and the lampstand and the dimensions of the tabernacle, how to construct it and how the, the priests should close themselves and how sacrifices were to be offered and how the incense was to be burned. And I'm sure if they heard these things, they would have said, yes, that's right, that's good. That God is giving us a way how to worship Him. And they would have been thrilled with these laws and again would have said, yes, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And their perspective of the law would have been smiles. They would have been happy when the law came. I say this because often in the Old Testament, the law is seen as something wonderful and, and desirable and worthy of pursuing. The psalmist says, oh, how I love thy law. What? It's my meditation all the day. The psalmist said, your law is my delight. 
The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. David said in Psalm 19, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. It is the law that's perfect and and shows me how my soul can be restored and renewed. The, The testimony of the Lord, he says in Psalm 19, is sure. It makes wise the simple. The simple who doesn't know which way to go. If he knows the law of the Lord, the testimony, he can be wise by walking in its ways. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. Think about the precepts of the Lord. The psalmist says, David says, it causes my heart to rejoice. The commandment is pure. It enlightens the eyes. It shows us what's right and it shows us what's wrong. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments are true. They are righteous altogether. All the things of the law ring true. There's no deceit in them. Put it out. They are righteous altogether. Gives the psalmist reason to rejoice in them. And then David says, They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So sweet was the law to the mouth and the heart and the mind of David. Isaiah, when he reflected back upon the words the Lord had given to Moses, he said that God was pleased, here it is, to make the law great and glorious. Isaiah 42, verse 21. The law that God gave was great and glorious and desirable and perfect. You think even back in chapter 19, perhaps you've read it this past week, it speaks about how it came in great glory. And Paul affirmed that the law came in great glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And when Jesus came upon the earth, His view was exactly the same. He said, Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. He looked to the Pentateuch, Jesus did, for help to strengthen Him in temptation. And He upheld the law as something worthy to be followed even down to the smallest tithing of dill and mint and cumin. As the Pharisees did, Jesus said, you ought not to have neglected those. The weightier provisions were more important. But he said, don't even neglect these. Jesus saying the law is so perfect and so righteous and so good. Even the Apostle Paul spoke highly of the law. He said the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. On several other occasions, Romans 7, verse 16, 1 Timothy 1, 8, he said that the law is good. But, however, and yet, as good and glorious and perfect and desirable as the law is, there is something about the law that is incredibly dreadful at the same time. Martin Luther, the German reformer, said this, Moses, with his law, is most terrible. There never was any equal to him in perplexing, affrightening, tyrannizing, threatening, preaching, and thundering. For he lays sharp hold on the conscience and fearfully works it. That's Martin Luther's perspective of the law. John Bunyan also knew the terrorizing effects of the law. In Pilgrim's Progress, his great allegory, he had faithful walking along the way, and then Moses and the law came up to overtake him. And listen to how faithful described that encounter. Faithful said, So soon as the man overtook me, he was but a word and a blow, 
For down he knocked me and laid me for dead. But when I was a little come to myself again, I asked him wherefore he served me so. He said, because of my secret inclining to Adam the first. And with that, he struck me another deadly blow on the breast and beat me down backwards. So I lay at his foot as dead as before. And so when I came to myself again, I cried him for mercy. But he said, I know not how to show mercy. With that, he knocked me down again. And Faithful said that he had doubtless made an end of me, but the one came by and bid him forbear, only because he was rescued from the law by one, referring to Jesus Christ. Was he ever to escape out of that? And Paul spoke similarly as well about the dread of the law. He said in Romans 7, 9-11, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment of the law came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment of the law, deceived me and through it killed me. And so I ask you, church family, what about this law? Is it good and righteous and pure and holy and good and glorious? Or is it bad and tyrannizing and terrible? Is it the delight to our hearts or is it the terror of our souls that beats us down and kills us? Yes. It's both. And the key to it really comes in my second point this morning, obeying the law. Verse 3b, when the people said, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Willing pledge of obedience. Notice how encompassing this pledge is. All the words... We will do. And it was all the people who said this. And they all with one voice said this. They all pledged their complete obedience to all the law of God. And later in verse 7, they said the same thing. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And I simply say this, that these words come as great encouragement to us. This is the heart of the godly that says, Oh, I want to obey Your law. All that You spoke, Lord, I will do. Following God in every way. In fact, you look through the Scriptures and time and time and time again, you see those who put their faith into action through obedience are blessed. It's true of Abraham, true of Ezra, and even Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and obey it. There's a great blessing that comes there. We ought not to neglect the law and pass it aside. It's you know, something that we ought not to follow or think about. But it's precisely here in seeking to obey it that the terror of the law comes upon us. Because as we seek to keep all the law, we soon, to discover, we soon discover how far we fall. And in falling, we realize that we come under the judgment of God. First James chapter 2, verse 10 says, You transgress in one, you're guilty of transgressing the law. And that was the experience of Martin Luther. He knew he was a lawbreaker. John Bunyan knew there was a law that we break constantly. Paul knew that the law was there and that it was broken constantly. And this is the experience of every believer in Jesus Christ. 
Right? And I love how Paul says it in Romans 7, verse 14. The law is spiritual. Right? It's good. It's right. And I affirm it. And that's what I want. But I'm a flesh sold into bondage to sin. And and he says, even though he looks at the law and he says, I I want to obey that which I I want to do. I I agree with the law that it's good. Though in myself sin resides and I fail to do it. And you just need to realize there's a a right way to read the law and there's a wrong way to read the law. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.8, We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane. In other words, the righteous person doesn't need the law to live righteously. The righteous person doesn't need a sign that says shoplifters will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. The righteous doesn't need that sign because the righteous isn't going to take anything from the store any place anyway. The wicked who need that sign. The righteous doesn't need to be told the way to turn in line because he'll give preference to others in honor. The righteous doesn't need the policeman to remind him to slow down because he's going the speed limit anyway. The righteous doesn't need to go through security at the airport because he has no intent to harm anyway. It's precisely because of the presence of sinful, wicked people that Signs of warning in policemen and metal detectors exist to curtail the evil, to expose the sin. Right? And the whole reason why God has given us the law is to show sinful, lawless, and rebellious people their sin. Or to use biblical language, Romans 3, verse 20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law certainly instructs us in the way to live. But it's in our failures to live that way, it also instructs us of sin. And that was one of the purposes of the law, is to reveal sin. And as God gave these laws to Moses, the people of Israel, it certainly instructed them how to live, and they were to respond as they did. All, the wor- all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, right? That is the proper response. That is how we ought to live. But to a greater degree, these laws demonstrated how sinful they were. That's the purpose of the law. The law has a wonderful way of doing this. I just want to do a little bit of that this morning. I want to show you of your sin. Because if I show you your sin, right, the need of a Savior becomes huge. Let's turn back to Exodus 20. Let's just take some of these commands. Right, the first commandment comes in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before Me. God's simply demanding that He alone be worshipped. Nothing else should replace God as the top priority in your life. Nobody should have higher affections in your heart than God. You call to love God more than your children, more than your spouse. You call to love God more than your weekend vacations, more than your technology toys, more than your reputation, more than your health, more than your retirement, more than your pleasure. In short, the commandment calls us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. Anything less is sin because you have another God. The second commandment comes in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. This commandment is similar to the first commandment and it calls for your entire devotion to be directed to God and God alone and not towards the things upon earth. And strictly speaking, 
This commandment here speaks about a physical idol to which you would bow down. And we in America might feel snug. You know, we walk about here and we don't have idols just in the street as they do in other nations. We aren't bowing down to other bales. However, I heard one preacher speak about the bales that are pertinent to us, right? Maybe you know them. The foot bale. The basket bale. And the base bale. And many Americans make their sports heroes idols. They schedule all their time around their sporting events. Well, you say, well, I'd, I'd, I'm not into sports. That's okay. Well, you can make other bales of, of entertainment heroes or other people. Or, particularly here in America, we live in such an affluent society it's easy for us to love our wealth and materialism. And Paul says that greed is, for all intents and purposes, practically the same as idolatry. Are you greedy at all? Or are you free with your money? Does your money have an open hand to give and give and give? Or do you find yourself possessing? Someone breaks something that you have, are you desirous of that? Do you keep it? Or, or do you see somebody and do you just give? Because if you're greedy... It's idolatry. It's the essence of idolatry. Third commandment comes in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Obviously, this prohibition here is a swear word. If you swear, you're breaking this commandment. And I believe firmly that substituted language is swearing. Oh my gosh, and darn it, and geez, reflect a disposition of the heart that's merely trying to sidestep the spirit of this commandment. If you're into saying those words, I would say work hard to change your vocabulary. Because, after all, God is looking at the heart and the heart of saying those things is like swearing. But the prohibition here extends to other things. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Vain means like emptiness or vanity or, or triviality. And there is a form of praying. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've heard it. People are praying. And someone else is in the circle. And someone else in the circle say, Yes, Jesus. 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 And that, my friends, is a mantra. And that is making light of the name of Jesus because it's repeated so much it doesn't mean anything anymore. At Rock Valley Bible Church, we can break the third commandment easily when we sing His praise with anything less than a full heart because you're minimizing, you're making empty, you're making less the name of Jesus. So the one who sings, My Jesus, I know Thou art mine. That is breaking the third commandment because it's taking the name of Jesus. Anything less than full, enthusiastic, passionate. My Jesus, I love Thee. I know Thou art mine. Anything less than taking the name of Jesus and exalting it where the proper place where it should is a transgression of this commandment. I just encourage you in your singing to sing with a genuine heart to God. That's loudly, that's loudly. If it's passionately, it's passionately. Because you can't take His name and reduce it. That's what vanity means. The fourth commandment comes in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor from all your work. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. Now there's great discussion about this commandment. Some would say this commandment is binding on us today. The Christian Sabbath is for today and it is Sunday. Sunday. 
Others would say Christian Sabbath doesn't exist. Rather, all days are alike. That controversy was in the early church. Paul said, one person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced his own mind. It's interesting. Paul didn't say this way is right or this way is right. He could have settled the matter once for all for all Christendom, but he didn't. And thus there's confusion about this. But I simply ask you, wherever you land on this commandment, you might be convicted as well. If you think that the Christian Sabbath is for you, I ask you, do you work six days hard enough that on the seventh day you do no work at all? On that day, do you devote it entirely to the Lord by resting your body and doing no work? Or is that day a day of play for you? Is it a day of play or is it a day of worship? Is it a day of rest? It's a day of activity. I mean, the the thrust of this commandment is do nothing. Do no work. It doesn't mean diversive work. It means no work. Or if you don't believe in a Christian Sabbath, I ask you, do you commit every day as holy to the Lord, working for Him, worshiping for Him, serving Him? Is every day like Sunday to you? You get up for work. You say, I don't have to keep the Sabbath. Well, I ask you, if you get up for work Monday morning, do you get up with a desire to worship God because it is a holy day unto Him? Anything less is a transgression of the law. Fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Children, speaks directly to you. It means speaking well of your parents. Right, Brandon and Melissa? and Kara, and Jesse, and Hannah, and Drew, and Gray J, and Alicia, and Joshi, and most importantly, SR, and Carissa, (laughs) and Hannah. It means speaking well of your parents. It means commending them in whatever way you can. Speaking highly of them, serving them willingly, obeying them in everything. In fact, that's the, that's the standard of the New Covenant, right? Children, obey your parents in all things. That's why parents shoot for first-time obedience, because anything less is disobedience. Anything less is breaking the law. But it's not simply for children, it's for adults also. Moses talking about giving honor to parents, perhaps they're too old. To care for themselves. And it means to provide for them perhaps financially. Maybe it means to help them physically as they get older. It means honoring them. It means even speaking well of them despite how poor of a parent they were. Finding the good and honoring and lifting them high and seeking not to tear them down in any way. And so serious was God about this command that He said in Exodus 21 verse 17, He who curses father or mother shall surely be put to death. The sixth commandment. Short and simple, but to the point, as any in the Bible, you shall not murder. It means we shouldn't take the life of another person. And I hope all of us here today can rest assured that we go, well, I'm free from that commandment, at least. Well, Jesus, when He took this commandment, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, we've been through that, took it down to the heart, and He said it's an issue of the seed that germinates to get to murder is where sin can be found as well. He said, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Have you been angry at someone? If you have, you've got a seed of murder in you. And Jesus says you're guilty. The seventh commandment works the same way. You shall not commit adultery. It means that you should be faithful to your marriage partner. 
before you're married and after you're married. It covers the gamut of sexual sin. And Jesus said in those famous words, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, you commit adultery in your mind, you've committed adultery. And who of us can stand blameless before God? And it's amazing how deceptive our heart is in these matters. I was recently speaking with a man who was involved in a sinful sexual relationship. And I asked him about it and he kind of diverted the question. And I asked him about it and he diverted the question. I asked him about it and only with great reluctance did he sort of admit that he was involved wrongly. That's a sin. So pervasive in our minds. I simply ask you, are you guilty of these things? The Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, refers to taking anything that's not rightly yours. But beyond the obvious burglary and grand theft auto, it applies to cheating on your taxes, taking an apple off a neighbor's tree and eating it without permission, copying software illegally, pirating software from the Internet, plagiarism, keeping permanently what you initially and agreed to borrow. Books are notorious for that. Cheating your employer of an eight-hour day. I mean, all these things. Stealing. Have you stolen? The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, refers to the truthfulness of our words. What comes out of our mouth ought always to be the truth, especially as it relates to our neighbor. Bearing false witness. Speaking a lie against your neighbor. It forbids all backbiting. It forbids all tearing down of others. It it forbids placing others in a negative light. How easy is it to intentionally place others in a negative light? It means we ought always to speak the truth. You know what? You ought so to speak the truth about other people knowing that it's the truth and knowing you're speaking it love that you would not be ashamed to say those very things before the very person you're talking about. Husbands and wives, if you had conversations, when you have conversations about this, why don't you say, well, i tell you what. What if so-and-so were right here? Could you say those things? If not, you're, you're bearing false testimony. Because if it's true and speaking in love, you certainly can be able to speak those before others. Do you do that? Do you speak the truth about others? Or do you like maybe a white lie, try to shade it? into your advantage. And this talks about lies. It talks about white lies. It just says that what comes out of our mouth ought to be true. And this ought to convict us here this morning because even Jesus, James said that the tongue is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Who can tame it? We can't. The tongue is very difficult to tame because it comes from the heart. The tenth commandment. You shall not covet. Your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or his servant or his ox or his donkey or anything. It means you need to be totally content with what you have. Nothing comes before your eyes that you don't want to have. Now, this is very difficult for us. We live in a covetous society. You're watching television, right? And your show stops and the commercials come on. And the goal of commercials is to get you to covet. Do you realize that? The whole purpose of a commercial is to entice you to buy something so as to support them. And they do that oftentimes by compelling you to create in you a covetous desire, right? At one moment, you're watching the bail game, right? And then uh, a commercial comes on and you're like, I, I didn't even know I wanted an iPod. 
And you say, I, huh, I guess I do want a car like that. That's how it works. So you're walking through the malls. You're going to purchase something, but on the way, you look at this, you say, oh, that looks... Not, I did, You know what? I didn't even realize that I wanted that. I didn't even realize I needed that. That's the whole purpose of display ads. Right? They, they display it there to show you how good and nice it is. Trying to get you to covet. That is the goal of advertisement. That is the goal of our society. And so I ask you, are you covetous? Are there things that you just kind of wish you had? This is the commandment that provoked the heart of Paul. Demonstrated to him he was a sinner. You know, when he considered his own standing before God according to the law, <laughs> he had the audacity to say he stood blameless. Philippians chapter 3 is a great passage. He said, well, I was circumcised the eighth day exactly according to the law. I was of the Jewish race, right? God's chosen people. And even of that, the most special pri- tribe among them, I was a, a Benjamite. Considering my religious attainments, I was a Pharisee. I was a pastor. I devoted myself to religious work. I had a zeal for God that was unmatched. Nobody was as zealous as me. As to the righteousness which is in the law, he said, I was found blameless. And that's if you keep everything externally according to the rules, according to superficial readings, certainly he was. But when Paul, a Pharisee, looked at the law, and found this tenth commandment, it broke him to the core. He said this, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. In other words, God used this commandment of coveting to pierce deep into the heart of Paul and cause him to understand his sinful desires for coveting for other things, as the law does so well, and he became convicted of his sin. And I say that is the purpose of the law. Right? Romans 3.20, I quote it again, through the law comes a knowledge of sin. And listen, if you are reading along with us in the Bible, and this next week is Leviticus, I encourage you just to read it with this, these eyes on that just says, you know what? The law was given to show us a knowledge of sin and as we think about the sacrifices and why they're made, we think about the priestly ritual and what they did, we think about the uncleanness of the leprosy. This is all to show us sin. So you think about Leviticus in light of Romans 3.20. And I say this, the way to deal with the law is not like the Israelites did. The Israelites certainly had good intentions. The Israelites certainly had bad theology. They said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And try as they ought, they would surely fail. Because the purpose of law is to show you in what you're supposed to do, how you fail as well. Right? But the good news is this. Where we have failed to keep the law, Jesus Christ has kept the law. Romans 8, 3-4, for what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of His sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What the law couldn't do because it was weak, God did in sending His own Son to accomplish and succeed and triumph over the legal requirements of the law. And the good news is this, as we see the law, 
as we see how we have failed God and His legal requirements, right? It brings us to despair and brings us to our only hope, which is faith in Jesus Christ. If you're going to think and carry away from the sermon one verse, I want you to carry away this verse, Galatians 3.24. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Right? And here, in a sense, you can see why the comparison. How is it the law is so good? How is it the law is so terrible? Maybe you've had teachers before, tutors before, right? Someone is a teacher, someone's your tutor. Are they going to teach you good things? Do they have good things in mind for you? They do. And yet, in the midst of it, do you like it many times? Kids, your teachers, what kind of perspective do you have of your teachers? Kind of rough sometimes, huh? And they look terrible and tyrannizing, right? But they're trying to teach you something. And in that sense, they're good, though they're terrible. They're good. And they should be obeyed and followed. And the direction and end where they're taking you is what's to be trusted. And Paul says that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. And baby, I hope now you can see how wonderful the law is and yet how destructive it is at the same time to our souls. Because the law hurts us and guides us and disciplines us and shows us where we can't get to the place on our own. The law shows us of Christ. And maybe this morning finds you apart from Christ. Maybe you've never felt your need for a Savior. So my trust that you've seen your need today. You simply need to cry out to God. Right? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And may the law do its deep and penetrating work in your heart today and next week to come if you're going to read through Leviticus as I encourage you to. So let's pray together. Oh God, I think about the, the glorious truth of Christ and I think about how wonderful He becomes when we see what a difficult situation we are in. Jesus Christ is the one who comes to save and rescue. I think in recent days we've heard and seen of minors being trapped. Jesus is the one who comes and breaks through the rubble and rescues the minor. We've heard of hostages being captured and set to die. Jesus is the one who goes in and rescues the hostage out of certain death. And so, God, in that, I pray that as we would worship this morning, I pray that we would see nothing as, val- as valuable and precious and dear to us as knowing and loving Jesus Christ. Because everything that we thought dear and thought good, as Paul did, is really actually a loss and a detriment. Because our only hope is to be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of our own, based upon the law, but our only hope is to have a righteousness based on faith in Jesus Christ who will justify and purify us and cleanse us from all sin. And so, God, I think about how this call to worship has been long and extended this morning. May we really respond, not singing vainly, God, but singing out with whole hearts, expressing our love and admiration for and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.